Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You know, I was cold this morning. That's why I'm wearing a vest. I told my wife, I texted her, and I said, listen, you got to, can you turn me down just a little bit? Uh, you got to give me a vest. Because see, when I get cold, I get nervous. Do you know that feeling? You just can't let it go, and then the nerves set in, so that's kind of where I am right now. So I need the, the strength of the Lord to kind of calm me down. Hey, welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad that you're here today. If you're new with us, uh, what we love to do at Bergen Park is to follow Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and then to do what Jesus did. Church is not about just Sunday morning. Honestly, it's about the people around you. It's about building community getting to know each other, and in getting to know each other, following Jesus together, finding out that you have challenges and I have challenges, and we pursue Christ together, and in pursuing Christ together, we become like Jesus. He starts to change us. We see that over time, and in becoming like Jesus, we start to do Jesus' stuff in this community, and people find out that God is real, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so, hey, that's what we're about. Today, we're in the book of Nehemiah. And so if you want to grab a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you. You can grab one of those. You can turn them on. We're in Nehemiah chapter 8. We skipped chapter 7. And when you look at chapter 7, you'll figure out why I skipped it. If you want to wait for a minute and look at chapter 7, you'll realize it is a list of names. And actually, there are some names in chapter 8. And someone told me if I say it with confidence, you won't know if it's right or wrong. Well, I'm just not going to say it because I tried to read it. And as a dyslexic, trying to read a word you don't understand it don't work. It don't work. So anyways, there's some, some words, uh, names in chapter 8 we're going to read that are just challenging. But let me give you a little context to where we are. We're going through the book of Nehemiah because we want to move from a place of selfish ambition where life is just about us to a place of holy ambition where life is included with us, but it's about God and what he's doing in the world. Because often you look out at the world and you see stuff that's broken. And what does the world say to do? Just react, get angry, blame somebody. That's kind of the world's way of dealing with things. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God doesn't come in with condemnation. Instead, it takes responsibility. You know, Jesus took responsibility for your sin. What if as a church we started taking responsibility and owning the brokenness and the sin in the world? Hey, I didn't do that. It wasn't my fault. Well, what if we started taking responsibility? What if we started owning the problems in the world? And what if instead of just getting angry and hating others and kind of pushing ourselves from, away from culture, we started like Nehemiah saying, God, what do you want me to do? What if God started giving us a holy ambition? Because that's what Nehemiah does in chapter one. Four months, he sees a problem in the world and instead of blaming, instead of just getting angry, what he does is he sits in it and he goes to the Father and he fasts for four months and says, God, what do you want me to do about this? And after four months, God puts this vision on his heart and says, listen, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to leave your place of comfort. And he realized Nehemiah was wealthy. He was living fat on the hog. There was no reason for him to leave where he was living and go to Jerusalem. It wasn't like it was a better job, a better opportunity, better people. It was worse in every single way. But because God had put this on his heart, he said, listen, I want to sacrifice for a cause that's bigger than I am. And he goes to Jerusalem. And he starts to rebuild the walls. And as he starts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to reestablish the city, which is really to reestablish God's people, when you walk by faith, you will encounter those who walk by sight. 
and he encounters opposition. The sad thing is the opposition he encounters, it's not just out there, guys. It's in here. Some of the greatest opposition doesn't come from the unbelieving world. It actually comes from within those who are in our own midst, those that do not trust God and cannot see the vision. And opposition starts to come up. But what we discover in Nehemiah chapter 6 is the only opposition that's going to keep you from accomplishing the purpose of God in your life is unrepentant sin. There are external pressures, there are internal pressures. The only thing that's gonna keep God from working through you is the refusal to admit your need for God and refusal to surrender your sin and your brokenness to him. And then last week, Jonah did a great job as we saw Nehemiah finishing the wall and he had this great prayer. See, Nehemiah has all these breath prayers. You'll, you'll find them throughout the book and one of them is, Lord, just strengthen my hand. That's all I got. As I'm facing opposition and I'm facing heartache and people are coming to me, God, strengthen my hands. And it says, and the wall was finished. So when we get to chapter eight, and you'll look at chapter seven now. Do you see why I skipped it? You there? You tracking with me? I cannot pronounce half of those words, probably not even a third. So we're going to chapter eight. And if someone wants to preach chapter seven next week, you can come up and do that. I'd love love to see you try. It'd be a beautiful opportunity if you want to take that. But in chapter eight, see, Nehemiah gets a vision. We're not just building a city. We're building God's people. And see, what this people need is they need to surrender. And what we need is we need to surrender to the word of God. The reason the nation of Israel was in the mess they were in is because they had rejected the word of God. And they looked at the nations and and what their neighbors were doing and how good they looked and how successful they were and what they were trusting in. And they said, that looks better than what we're doing. We're going to abandon this God way. We're going to go live with the ways of the nations. And that's what they did. And God said, listen, when you abandon me, guys, when you abandon me, what's going to happen is these nations are going to come in, they're going to plunder you. And that's exactly what happened. They were taken off into exile. And see, as an act of surrender and worship, recognizing what had happened when they disobeyed God, that starts off in Nehemiah chapter 8, and they say, God, we want to surrender ourselves to your word. We want to worship you. We want to know you. We want to be guided by you in church. Do we want the same thing? question I have for you is what is your relationship to God's word so let's try it you guys ready okay we're going to jump into it again there's some words here I cannot pronounce we're going to skip over them don't don't judge me you're not up front here (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra, the priest, he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on that day, on the first day of the month, of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand And notice, in the ears of all those who were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for this purpose. And beside him was Mattathiah and a lot of names I cannot pronounce. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, 
the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their face to the ground. And then Jerusha and Benai and a bunch of names I cannot pronounce and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse eight, and they read from the book of the law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribes, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the word that was declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey Father, as we've gathered here, you are our Abba, you are our Father, you love to teach your children. And so we set aside this short time just to get into Scripture, and it's the Holy Spirit that is in us that illuminates the Word of God. And so, Father, we're your children and we're listening. Help us to hear. What do you have for me? What do you have for us? So that we might know you become like you and do what you do. God, teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your relationship to God's Word? Is it adversarial? See that book on the shelf? (laughs) Kind of pass it by. Is it a love relationship? Is it just a story? Is it just a book? Does it bring life? Does it not bring life? What is your relationship to God's word? What we're gonna discover in this passage is there is a revival among God's people because two things happen, and here's kind of the outline. They rediscover the word of God and they respond with a holy response. They rediscover the word of God. We're gonna find out by submitting to it, hungering it, and understanding it. And then there is this holy response in which they grieve and weep. It's kind of like getting that letter where somebody's writing to you and it kind of reveals who you are and where you are. They grieve and weep before God. But see, then the priests and Levites say, listen, there's grace, there's mercy. Let's rejoice, let's worship, let's have a party. Let's, let's cook some brisket and some wine. And if anybody doesn't have any brisket and wine, let's go over there and give them some. They're not gonna even know why we're celebrating, but God has spoken to us and his people are restored. That's what we're gonna look at. First of all, rediscovering. What what leads to revival in our life is when you begin to rediscover the power of God's word. There it is. Look at that. That's what I just said. So watch this, verse one. And all the people gathered. Notice it says they gathered as one man. That means one heart One focus, one thought. They're all coming together. Because see, remember, the wall's restored. This is a time of celebration. But we don't want to just do something physically. We want to be restored spiritually. And all of the people are coming together. Now, scholars say there were some 50,000 people. I don't know. I wasn't there. 50,000 people assembled in Jerusalem on that day. And it says before the water gate, I imagine that's where water was. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The book of the law was more than likely the first five books of the Old Testament. 
So we're calling Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what's happening is the people are assembled and realize the reason they're in the situation they're in is because they didn't honor and they didn't submit themselves to God's word. That's why the Assyrians came, the Babylonians came. You know the story of the history of Israel. They're kind of taken off into exile. And as they're coming back, what they're doing is one man, is one woman together, they're saying, God, we want to surrender ourselves under your word. And sometimes that's a good way to begin, a good way to start the day. Lord, as I'm coming to you, I am your son, I'm your daughter, I'm surrendering myself to your word. That's where revival begins when we say, God, your word is authoritative, it is life-giving, I want to open my heart to it. And that's what's happening. Again, let's go jump back in in verse 2. And Ezra, now Ezra's been gone for 13 years. I don't know if you realize it, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's one book. Nehemiah could be called Ezra chapter 2 or part 2. It's a continuous story. And so Ezra's been gone 13 years. You, hear, you read about him in that first story in the book of Ezra. Ezra comes back, the priest, and he brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and anybody who can understand. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning. So imagine maybe 6 a.m., 7 a.m., sun's coming up, early morning to midday, four, five, I don't know, six hours. He is sitting there just reading the Bible, and everybody's standing. I mean, imagine that, 50,000 people standing as they're listening to God's word. And then all the ears of the people were attentive. They weren't bored. Verse 4, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for this purpose, and beside him was Mattathiah. And again, some names that are difficult to pronounce. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above the people, and he opened it, and the people stood. And I can imagine this being spontaneous. You ever been in a place, and that person walked in the room? And you're surprised, maybe it's a president, maybe it's the leader of your company, maybe it's just somebody you admire, and it's just everything in you just kind of rises up because there's a person of importance and grandeur in that room. That's what they did when they heard the word of God. They had been so starved and hungry just to hear God's word. They heard it, and it, and it was almost like within, there, the, it, within them was this compulsion. i got to rise. i got to stand. Verse 6, and notice what Ezra does. He blesses the Lord, the great God, and all the people together, 50,000 together saying, Amen and Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There was a reverence a hunger, a desire for God's word. And church, more than we need anything else for the church, we need a hunger and a reverence for God's word. Now you may think that kind of falls short, but more than we need anything else, we need a reverence and a hunger for God's word. We have some of the greatest teachers in our country. Greatest books, commentaries, most biblical scholar commentaries written in the United States. And yet we don't need great insight. We need a, need a great surrender. You know, I can't bless you in my speaking, but the word of God, if, as you read it, it can bless you. You know, the word of God, I can't set you free from the lies that you believe, the deception you're walking in, but you can read the word of God and submitting to it, and through the spirit, it can set you free. I can't reveal the word of God for your life. I can't reveal God's personal will for your life. But in reading the word of God, it can reveal his will, what he wants for you, where he's leading you. Church, more than we need great teachers and great insight, we just need to read the scriptures. But the question is, do we believe that? 
Could you imagine just for a moment what it would be like to be the first person to ever read the Bible in English? Now, we gotta kind of rewind to get there. I don't know when the first English Bible was written. I think it was back probably in the 1500s. But could you imagine if you were the first person in the English language to hold the New Testament and to read the word of God for the first time? There's a, a little clip I wanna show you from the movie Luther. One of my favorite movies, in the two, it, was, it came out in 2006. Now, realize Martin Luther is a man that loved God and yet he was a holy sinner. One of the things you discover about the saints of the past, I don't know how much saint was in there. There was a lot of sinner, and the only reason they're saints is because they're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Martin Luther was a man that had a lot of brokenness, but he had a lot of passion. And in this moment, in this clip, what you're gonna see is he's presenting the word of God to Prince Frederick. Frederick kind of protected him, and it's written in German meaning that the word of God for the first time was written in the common language. And from that time on, the word was now coming to people, ordinary people like yourself. They're reading it for the first time. And I want you to just kind of imagine yourself being Prince Frederick, reading scripture for yourself for the first time. You guys got that loaded up? You wanna load it? Let's watch this, guys. And imagine yourself being in this situation. Who's there? No. Martin Luther? My lord. Well, we meet at last. I dedicated this work to you, my lord the translation of the New Testament into our own language. Into German? But this will separate us from Rome forever. I have always sought Christian unity, but not at the price of servitude. I answer to God's law, not Roman. Roman law is the reality. I believe in the reality of Christ. With no compromises? None. You realize, of course, they'll take this to be an act of sheer provocation. Yes. And they will not hesitate to strike back. Yes, I know. Well, so long as you know... Do you think I could have my present now? Yes, of course. Could you imagine opening the Bible for the first time written in your own language. There are 1,500 languages today that do not have a translation of the Bible. 1,500 languages that do not have a translation of the scriptures. Could we imagine again what it would be like to surrender yourself to the word, hearing it for the first time? 
What leads to revival is a surrender to God's word, but then second, it's a hunger for the word of God. So watch this. Verse two, again, Ezra the priest, they brought out the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand. On the first day of the seventh month, verse three, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate early in the morning till midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And I love this phrase. It says, the ears of all the people were attentive. They were captivated to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform they had made for him for this purpose. Four, five, six hours, the people are simply listening. And you could imagine internally, like water touching a parched land, they're saying more, more. This hunger for scripture, this hunger for God's word begins to rise up within them. Hosea chapter four, verse six says this. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for a lack of access and hunger for God's word. Then I wanna go to 2 Timothy chapter four. In 2 Timothy chapter four, this is Paul's last letter to his disciple Timothy. You know, he'd been investing into Timothy all his life. Timothy was now a pastor in Ephesus. What are the last words that Paul would say to his disciple Timothy before he dies to encourage him and to direct him? Now listen to the weight of these words. I charge you, verse, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. So that's a huge statement, meaning Jesus is coming back with his kingdom. So what's the most important thing, Timothy, I can tell you to do? Preach the word. Verse two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. Now listen, when you hear that, you're always thinking of someone else. Those people, right? This is written to you. What if our itching ears, what if there are things in us that we want to hear, but we can't hear, see, we can't decipher truth from falsehood because we're not willing to surrender ourselves. We think we know what it says. That is the most dangerous thing for a pastor, for a Christian to say, hey, I know what it says, instead of going to what it says and surrendering ourselves to it. Verse four, and we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. This is speaking to us. As for you, always be sober-minding, enduring suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your work of ministry. I wanna share this quote with you. It's from a book called The Furious, Furious Longing for God. It's by Brendan Manning. And he, what he does is he kinda shares this idea that we have had the scripture for so long, it's become so common to us that often we don't really listen to what it says, we just assume we know what it says. And maybe this will speak to you. He says, because we approach the gospel with preconceived notion of what it should say rather than what it does say, notice the word no longer falls like rain on parched ground of our souls, it no longer sweeps like wild storm into the corners of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates like sharp lightning into the dark recesses of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the word of Gertrude Stein, I don't know who she is, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant past. Do we have a hunger for the intake of God's word or do we just go, I know what it says? Revival happens when we submit, when we hunger, and then third, we gotta understand. 
And that's what we see at the end of verse 7. It says the Levites, Levites, the priests, kind of helped them to understand the law. It wasn't enough just to read it. They had to get together in community. They had to wrestle with it. They had to understand what it says. And then in verse 8, reading from the book of the law, clearly they gave sense to us so the people could understand its, its meaning. When you understand the word of God, when you surrender to it, when you hunger for it and you understand it, hear me on this, it becomes a power in your life. The word of God is not information. It's information that leads to relationship. And we are transformed through the renewing of our mind, not because the information is enough. It's the relationship the information directs us to that changes us. But when you get the word of God into your heart, it becomes a power. Now, you may not feel that power, but over time it begins to change you and shape you and remake you. I want to tell you a story about a girl named Elizabeth. I heard this story through IJM, International Justice Mission. And sometimes they travel around the world and they will liberate women from brothels. Elizabeth was in one of these brothels. Elizabeth grew up in Thailand and she had a hunger for the word of God. She wanted to study scripture, but in a little village, she couldn't do that, so she had to go to the big city. And then these men said, hey, listen, Elizabeth, we're gonna take you to the big city. We know a noodle shop you can work in. Maybe you can make some money, you can go to Bible college. Elizabeth was excited. She left with these men. But as you can imagine, she didn't go to a noodle shop. She went to a brothel. And I don't have to explain to you the kind of hell that she must have gone through in that kind of location, giving herself, not giving herself, being taken, her life being taken from her by these men. When IJM came into that brothel, they went into the room that she was in, and this is what she found. They found on that wall. It was Psalm 27. Imagine these words written on the wall of a brothel, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In a brothel, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and foes attack, they will stumble, stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war be waged against me, even then will I be confident. On the word, these words on a brothel, the wall of a brothel, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I'll sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. The word of God in that place of hell sustained her, directed her. How could God's word in and whatever circumstances you're going through, bring light, life, restoration, and salvation. God's word is not information. It is a power that lives in us that works through us, and it changes us. But if we're going to be revived again, we have to rediscover it, one, to submit, to hunger, and then to understand and allow that power to work through us. Not only did they have a rediscovery of God's word, they had a holy response to God's word. And we see that in, in verse nine as they responded to the word of God. Two things I wanna show you. The first thing we see is they have this holy grief. They begin to cry together, 50,000 people weeping as they hear the word of God. 
And Nehemiah was the governor. Watch this, verse nine. And Ezra the priest and the scribes and the Levites who taught the people said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn, don't weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. See, part of the role of God's word is to lead you to a place where you hunger for grace. Because what it shows you is the breadth of God's holiness, and I can't perform this on my own. Instead, it leads you to your place where you need the gospel. And one of the challenges we have in our culture is we have removed the concept of sin. But we haven't removed the experience of sin. Hear me on this. Our culture has removed the concept. That doesn't mean somehow we've removed the existential experience of feeling guilt and shame. And I can guarantee you, people who are far from God, they feel guilt and shame. But see, the purpose of the law is to show you your need for grace. And if we don't have a concept of sin in our culture, there isn't a place to run to for grace, forgiveness, restoration, healing. And there are many people today, in some ways, it's kind of like having an ailment, and you go to doctor, to doctor, to doctor. I feel shamed. I feel guilt. I feel, and they can't solve it until they hear the word of the gospel, the word of Christ, his love, his forgiveness for us. We have that concept of sin in the church, but we also have that concept of grace, the purpose of Scripture is to lead us to our need for God, and that's why they're crying. But notice that crying doesn't last long because we're about to have some brisket We're about to have some sweet wine. We're about to have a party. And if anybody is poor, we're gonna bring some brisket over there. We're gonna bring some wine over there. Because notice, he says in verse 10, their weeping goes from the joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, when it says the joy of the Lord is my strength, it's saying joy is my fortress I run to. It is the place where I find restoration in the day of trouble. When I feel abandoned by those around me, even those that are supposed to love me, I run to the joy of the Lord because I find grace I find that he builds me up. I find that he restores me. And what it's describing is the power of the word in your life that when grief and sin leads to the joy of salvation, it changes us. But the question is, church, do we hunger for it? Can I admit to you, there were long periods in my life as a pastor where I didn't hunger, desire, or submit myself to God's word. I came to faith at the age of 19, I was in Young Life, senior in high school, came to faith, and I had this tremendous hunger for Scripture. I I just didn't understand why anybody else wouldn't want to read it. And I got into it, and I got into Campaigners, which is a Bible study for high school students in Young Life. And I was there. We were in Genesis. I still remember the study. I still remember the guy teaching. I was just sitting there, and I was hungry. I mean, you could have taught me anything, right, at that point. You need a good teacher. So anyway, I was just completely hungry. But see, then I, in my... My conversion, I had kind of this conversion call, meaning when I came to faith, I knew I was going to be a pastor. I know, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? I knew from that moment that God wasn't just calling me to follow him. He was like, nope, you're going to go out and do this. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll show you. And I went to university, and then I went to seminary. And what happened was the word that I delighted in became a means to an end. It became a means to getting A's. I usually got B's. But it became a a means to getting a good grade. It became a means to getting respect from my seminary students. It became a means of arguing the right doctrine to the wrong people, right? And it was no longer delight. I'll tell you, the word of God for a long time was just like a weight. I knew Hebrew, I knew Greek, I knew Latin, Aramaic. It was study, 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 but the word became dead in my heart. 
as a seminary, some of the coldest places you can be is in seminary. But this is what happened. I was in a chapel service at seminary, and this man got up. And for 20 minutes, he just started reciting scripture. And I think it was the Psalms. I can't remember exactly, but it was a lot of, a lot of Psalm-type language. And I have to tell you, it was like a wave of water that was washing over me, awakening me to God's power and his grace. And it also showed me that that kind of memorization and meditation was possible. And from that point on, God had taught me to memorize books of the Bible. And I did it because what it does is it refreshes my soul. And in meditation, God shows up. And it's kind of like when I start off in meditation, memorizing scripture, I'm just kind of doing it, doing it, doing it. And all of a sudden, the Father is there. And I look and I'm like, how long have you been here? Jason, I've been here the whole time. You just had to wake up to me. I'm going to try something this morning. I want you to know I'm fearful at doing this. This is the last passage that I just memorized. It's John 14. And with this, we're going to close in communion. So if you haven't gotten the elements, guys, you can grab them. I only have three weeks in John 14. But I really feel I want to be obedient to the Spirit. And so I want you to hear these words. This is John 14. These are Jesus' words before his disciples before he went off and his disciples were left behind. So I'm going to do the best that I can. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and has seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words you hear me say are not just my own. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So the Son may bring glory to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world 
cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas Not Judas Iscariot, so it said, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and show ourselves to him. He who does not love me does not obey my teaching. These words are not my own. Rather, they belong to the Father. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has sent in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Father, would you fill us with a greater hunger and desire for your word? Would you show us that it is a power, it is a light, it is restorative, it is truth, but it is truth that leads to you, leads us to relationship. And as we, Father, now come to the communion table, we take time just to reflect, maybe to confess that we have ignored your word. Father, we have not seen in it light and truth and power and grace. We have seen in it something that doesn't bring life, would you show us through the power of the Spirit, make us alive again to the truth of what you want to bring. Again, if you haven't received those communion elements, let's take a moment and grab them. Spend a few moments in silent prayer and then we're going to share communion together.